Hi, Doxology. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Kyle, and I'm a member here. I'll be doing the scripture reading tonight, uh, which will be in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. So I invite you to turn your Bibles there. Uh, if you do not have a Bible, you're welcome to borrow one of the black Bibles from the pew in front of you, uh, or you can take one of the light blue Bibles on the table in the lobby home with you. That is our gift to you. Uh, again, we are going to be Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. So please stand while I read scripture. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <clears throat> Thanks, Kyle. Well, good afternoon. It's good to be back with you all today. And we are continuing in our series this fall uh, called The Image of God Becoming Fully Human. And the heart behind this series is to equip us to navigate this challenging cultural moment where there is profound confusion and pain surrounding, you know, questions of identity and how do we love those, especially those who think differently than us. And so what we did is, um, in the first two weeks, we looked at the most important thing we need to grasp when it comes to understanding who we are and who other people are, is that the reason you exist is to image God, okay, that you have inexpressible worth, because, not because of your intellectual abilities or because of how your body looks, but you have worth because you were made to reflect God and represent God in the spaces you go into, that was week one. And then week two, we looked at it's not just you have an expressible worth, but your neighbor does as well, and all the vast implications for how we relate to those in our homes, uh, in our workplaces, and out there. And so now what we're doing today is we're moving from Genesis 1 and 2 to Genesis 3, where <clears throat> we're looking at what are the forces that disfigure or deform the image of God in us? And what's helpful about Genesis 1 through 3, and we'll look at other passages as well, is you can consider it, I mean, it is, the, it's the origin story of humanity, as it were, and like, I love origin stories. There's a reason why I never tire of reading the first Harry Potter or watching Batman Begins or the original Spider-Man, you know, that I saw in high school. Why? Because it helps explain the heroes we love and the villains we love to hate. And in a similar way, Genesis 1 through 3 gives us the origin story of humanity. And so, and this helps make a lot of sense of things, and and that's what my pastoral aim here is to help give you a fully 
more, a more full picture of how to understand yourself and other people. Because when you realize that on the one hand, humans are made in the image of God, but on the other hand, humans are profoundly marred by sin, powers, and trauma, the three things we're going to look at today, it, just, it makes sense of a lot of things. Right, so for example, it makes sense of why humans, on, like at the same time, are, just have so much capacity for beauty and creation and compassion, and yet also have, you know, the highest capacity of any other living entity to create pain, right? And so that's, so today we're going to look at what are the forces that, that mar the human race, and so we'll look at sin, powers, and trauma. Um, these are massive topics. Uh, so even though there's a lot to cover today, some of you may be frustrated by the, the brevity of what we're, you know, going to look at in each category, but we wanted to do this all in one Sunday because there, there's something helpful about keeping them all in the same picture frame, as it were, right, as opposed to having them separated by each Sunday. And so we'll just look at those three things in turn, uh, sin, powers, and trauma. And uh, credit where credit's due, there's a book written by an author named Rich Biotis who talked about these things these three things in concert with each other, which were helpful for me, and I, I commend it to you. It's called Good and Beautiful and Kind, if you want to read it. So that's where I'm drawing some of the things from that we're going to talk about today. Okay, so first, number one, here we see Genesis 3, and this is the start of everything, uh, sin, the force that disfigures the image of God in us. So Genesis 1 and 2, God has created a world where there is nothing but mutual trust and belonging and other-centered love between humans and God and between men and women. Okay, so that's where things are when Genesis 3 happens. So Genesis 3 comes in, we're just flying over this, but um, a lot happens. But go and look at verse 5. So the serpent, um, an agent of Satan or Satan himself, depending on your theological tribe, he comes in. Um, And in verse 5, Satan tells Eve, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and, here's the key, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, this phrase, knowing good and evil, he's not saying, okay, if you eat of the tree of knowledge and good of evil, you'll be able to understand what good and evil are. What a better translation could be, you now will define good and evil for yourself. Okay, and here's at the heart of sin. At the heart of sin is a reversal of the relationship between us and God. Like, see that phrase, you will be like God, to put ourselves in the place where only God should be. Or put another way, sin is rivaling God rather than reflecting God. Okay, we were created to reflect God, okay, but instead, in sin, we want, we want to rival him. Okay, instead of God's glory and God's name being uplifted, we want our glory and our name to be uplifted. Instead of following God's wisdom for life, we want to follow our wisdom and our interest for life. Okay, so that's what we see there in this initial exchange between the serpent and Eve. And then it continues. Let's look at verse 9. So after uh, Adam and Eve take and eat, so now they want to rival God, not just love him and reflect him. Verse 9 comes, and they're hiding from God. And the Lord calls to the man and says to him, where are you? And he said, Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave me to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Okay, so before we had mutual trust, belonging, and other-centered love. Now we have rivaling God, and here in this exchange we see shame, right? They're, They're hiding from God. They're trying to cover themselves with fig leaves. And now we see fracture in human relationships, right? So the woman you gave me, she's the one at fault. Okay, and so here in this little section we see the essence of sin. So first it's 
rivaling God rather than reflecting God. And two, it's a fracture of love, right, or a failure to love. And this may be a, a helpful way to think about it, because often, especially if you grew up in the church, um, oftentimes we, you may have grown up to believe mainly sin is just these, like, deep, dark, secret things you do in your private life, and life is mainly about sin avoidance. And that, that's true, like, the gospel has profound implications for our thought life and what we do in private. However, we understand sin more broadly, right, as a failure to love, Okay, and we looked at this last week, right? And the, Jesus says the second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself and tells a story about it. It helps broaden our understanding, right, of what it means to follow God and that life isn't just, okay, avoid these things, these bad stuff I do in private, but it's actually also about actively loving the people around me. Okay, so that's the essence of rivaling God and then a failure to love other people. Uh, there's a North African bishop named Augustine, and now he summed this up is with the phrase incurvitus in se, it's a really helpful phrase, incurvitus and say, and it means to be curved in on oneself. So meaning like the, the center of gravity of my heart when I engage with God and other people is to say, see me, notice me, attend to me, instead of I'm here to love you and serve others, right? Incurvitus and say is one way you can think about sin. Now, a, a couple, couple reflections on this. One is that... Um, I don't know what things were like in history, but I know where I am today. And there's a lot of hesitation surrounding the use of the word sin, uh, sometimes for good reason, because often, like, if, as long as, okay, it's one thing if sin's being used in a joking way, like, oh, that, this pastry is sinfully delicious, right? But if people use it in a serious way, there's a lot of people who take issue with that. Why? Because the word sin has often been used as a means of bigotry, right, as a means of creating insiders versus outsiders. So you guys are the sinners, right? I'm one of the righteous. But the Bible and the scriptures give us, like, no justification to use sin in that way. The re- one of the reasons why the scriptures and Jesus talk about sin so much is because we need a category robust enough to assess the profound pain in our culture, in our homes, right? In, in our most, in our churches, in our most intimate relationships, and there's an author named, uh, by the name of Barbara Brown Taylor, and she's getting at this idea of the usage of the word sin. And she puts it this way. She says, Abandoning the language of sin will not make sin go away. Human beings will continue to experience alienation and deformation, no matter what we call them. Abandoning the language will leave us speechless before them and increase our denial of their presence in our lives. And you see, so you see what she's saying? She's, okay, like we can leave the category of sin behind, call it a relic of religious societies. But she's like, that doesn't do justice to what's happening in our world because sin is not just people making mistakes. It is a, incurvitus in say, it's a power that exerts a force within us, right? That causes us to prioritize our fears, our perspectives, our interests over people. And it's behind, I mean, every act of abuse and violence it's underneath any time you or other people are arrogant or apathetic toward the needs of others, right, or, or overly aggressive. And, and so we need this category to make sense of, you know, why is the world so fractured? Sin. Okay, so, so, that's, so just banning language won't make it go away. But number two, uh, along the same vein, so 
because all of us in Romans 5 talks about this, right, are sinners both by nature and by choice, right? We inherited this from Adam and Eve, and part of the idea here is if we were in the garden, we would have acted the same way because they were a very fair representation of us in the garden. Sin is, it may sound counterintuitive, but it's radically egalitarian because it says that all of us are in the same boat. Okay, we can't, I can never say, you're a sinner and I'm not. Okay, so we never have any grounds to, you know, self-righteously prop ourselves up on a pedestal. Jesus tells a parable about this in in Luke 18, right, where I say, oh, look at them who who do ABC, right, but I'm not like that sinner, right? We are all in the same boat. And so we just need to be very careful, especially if you see someone acting in a way that's really hard for you to understand, for you to understand. We need to remember, like, I need the same power and healing love of Jesus than every every other single person on the planet. And you couple this, this empathy and this understanding with Genesis 1 and 2. Remember weeks 1 and 2. We're, we're made in the image of God. And every human's made in the image of God. Can we have no grounds to use it as an us versus them dynamic? Okay, so, so that's number one. One of the forces that affects us and distorts our ability to image God. And that is sin. Okay, so next number two. Let's look at powers. And here we're going to jump to Ephesians 6. Uh, we'll just look at one verse. Um, It should be on the screen as well. So Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. These are things we can see and just humans themselves. But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Okay, and so what the Apostle Paul is getting at here is, okay, so if sin is a force that exerts itself, if incurvitus and say is a force that exerts itself within us, we also have forces outside of us, right, that, that seek to um, disfigure the image of God in us and cause us to uh, have division and depersonalization between individuals, between people groups, okay, so we don't love one another well as image bearers. And I recognize that this idea that there are outside, invisible, spiritual forces, um, this may be hard for some of you to make intellectual room for. Um, So just a a few things to consider on this. Um, One is Jesus talked about it all the time. It's interesting even when he tells the parable of the sower, for those who have hardened hearts and are resistant to the gospel message, he says Satan actually will snatch the seed of the word away from people, and he loves to prevent them from actually receiving it. Okay, so Jesus talks about it the time, all the time. Number two, if, if you can, if you're here, well, maybe you're a believer and you just often forget that powers exist, right? Um, or you're here exploring the faith and you're just like, really, we're here talking about Satan in 2022? <laughs> like just, if you're, con- if you're considering of the possibility that God exists, right, a cosmic spiritual being who exists for good, then is it that much of a stretch to say, say there's a cosmic spiritual force for evil? But number three, Similar to the idea of sin, it is really, really hard to make sense of the atrocities in our world without this category. And so as an example, there's a a professor at Columbia. He's not a believer. He's a secular uh, historian. He teaches uh, the humanities and American studies at Columbia. His name is Andrew Del Banco. And he wrote a book uh, a number of years ago. I just thought this was really interesting. But it's called The Death of Satan. And here in the book, this is what he says, like, right toward, right toward the very beginning. He says, a gulf has opened in our culture between the visibility of evil, right, like our, our, our ability to see it and recognize it, and the intellectual resources available to cope with it. 
Then he continues, in the West, we've jettisoned the idea of transcendent supernatural evil. Everything has a natural cause. But as the 20th century has gone on, it's gotten more difficult to say the Holocaust and ethnic cleansing is just bad psychological and sociological adjustment. And you hear what he's saying. He's saying, okay, us educated Westerners, we've said that we need to leave this idea of the supernatural behind, right? It's only naive religious societies that believe in it. But then basically what he's saying is, if you think that all that was behind the brutality and dehumanization of the American slave trade was capitalism, and you think that all that was behind the Holocaust was Hitler, and you think that all that's been behind the massive church abuse scandals we've been seeing are just people grasping for power and poor psychological adjustment, I think you should consider that maybe you're the one being naive. And you see, here he's putting his finger on, you know, what the scriptures have been trying to tell us for a really long time. <laughs> okay, that we will not be equipped to handle life. We will not be able to make sense of life. We'll continually be surprised by life if we don't make room for this category. And so we have to ask, okay, so how do the powers operate? And here we're doing massive summary of biblical teaching. Okay, Revelation is one of the biggest, most extended places that talks about it. And essentially how the powers operate is they are evil spiritual forces who enter into individuals, uh, ideologies, and institutions and corrupt them for destructive ends. Okay, so evil spiritual forces who enter into, say, individuals, ideologies, institutions, and corrupt them for destructive ends. And key to realize here is, notice that, like, some of these institutions are not inherently evil in and of themselves. So if you can please bring up the list. So just some examples. Um, Government, political leaders, corporations, churches, educational institutions. We could add family, citizens, or cities nations. Okay, are these things evil in and of themselves? No, you could argue all these institutions have been and continue to be great forces for good, but also haven't they been used for (laughs) as incredible forces for evil? And the main way that the powers work is they, they basically take hold of and take advantage of the sinful tendencies, right, that are already naturally in the human heart, how we love to, right, grasp for power, money, how we love to not be loving toward others. And they mainly work for, and here I'm borrowing from Rich Biotis, uh, it's just a helpful way to remember it, through deception, division, and depersonalization. Okay, they utilize div- uh, division, deception, and depersonalization. So just as some examples— Uh, Deception. How in the world, right, uh, consider the amount of deception that was required in Hollywood, right, both for those doing the deceiving and those being deceived for Epstein and Weinstein to do what they did for as long as they did it. Or division. Okay, we're, we're in a cultural moment where it would now many of us believe that if somebody disagrees with you, especially politically, They're not just different, but they're an enemy. This is a deeply held belief. We looked at some of it last week. How many media and political machines depend on this dynamic to function? The answer is a lot. (laughs) 
okay, or depersonalization, right, where we just look at groups of people as faceless entities, right, and make assumptions in a negative way, right, where we, where it's easy to forget the image of God in, in each person, right, so anytime you see, right, bigotry or hatred or violence acted toward, or just thoughts, right, toward a group of people, right, be they a different skin color or people in the LGBTQ community or all men or all women or all conservatives or all liberals, right, they all act this way, they all think this way, okay, where we, we don't look at people through their individual stories and faces and attend to them as individual image bearers, but we depersonalize them, Okay, so this is how the powers operate, and we need to acknowledge this to be sober, okay? They exert a force in us, on us, and other people. Okay, number three, we're flying. I know we're flying. Okay, but so sin, powers, and next let's look at trauma. Hey, trauma. Um, I think of all the words that have surged in popularity over the past decade, uh, trauma probably is in the top ten, you know, word that's used, you know, more than I can remember it ever being used. And yes, do some people overuse the word? Sure. You know, like, oh my gosh, Chipotle was out of guacamole. That was a traumatic experience. Yeah, some people overuse it, but sometimes what the world may exaggerate, the church minimizes. You could say, and there there have been a lot of churches that have minimized this category. Uh, But the Bible speaks to it. And if one of the prime ways that we image God is by loving others and being loved, and that is one of the main ways we image of God, the, the one, main, one, one of the main ways we image God, then the wounds we carry and the trauma we carry radically plays into this, right? In our, in our ability to love and be loved. So this is a huge category. It's a sensitive category. And again, we're just giving a summary today. Um, next week, actually, Dr. Jen will be coming and he'll be giving a whole sermon on it. Just how does this Bible, how does the Bible speak to the wounds that we carry? Um, but for now, as we're keeping these three things, right, in perspective, sin, powers, and trauma, um, let's just look at a little bit, okay, of, of how to make sense of it, um, both from experience and looking at the gospel. And here I'm, I'm drawing a lot on the psychiatrist and biblical counselor named Kurt Thompson. And so the word trauma, it's Greek in origin, and it literally means wound. And how Kurt Thompson defines it is he says, uh, among other things, trauma results from an event or a series of events that's perceived by an individual to be physically or emotionally overwhelming and has lasting effects on their well-being. So it results from an event or series of events that's perceived by an individual to be physically or emotionally overwhelming and it has lasting effects on their well-being. So it has less to do with the event itself and more so to do with the response, right, whether that's in the mind, body, both, of the person who experienced the event. So just, for example, a retail worker getting screamed at by a customer, right? That may look very different to a bystander who's just watching that take place, and then how that's felt and carried in the body of the person who experienced that moment. And there are two main, there are two broad categories of trauma that you could distill down to. Category one is getting what you don't deserve. And this could be a cataclysmic event, so getting in a car accident, uh, a war incident that a soldier goes through, uh, being a victim of or a witness to a severe violence or assault. Okay, so it could be a cataclysmic event 
Or it could be a repeated series of small or not small events like that accumulates over time, such as, say, a parent or a caretaker belittling or screaming at a child, okay, day after day after day. So one, getting what you don't deserve. And then number two, not receiving what you do deserve. Or how I heard one doctor put it, nothing happening when something profitable may have happened. Okay, nothing happening when something profitable may have happened. So for example, maybe a home where the parents or caretakers, they are present and they're not violent or abusive, but they're distant and emotionally cold. Okay, and so not giving a child the warmth and the nurture and the attachment that they need to fully develop. Okay, and so these are wounds that we carry in our body, and they affect our ability to love and be loved as much as we may want to. And, I mean, th- this is a, I think just due to my upbringing, this was a category that I was initially pretty, you know, resistant to. Um, but, but it is there. And even if, if you don't feel like that you've gone through something cataclysmic, I mean, we, like, just the more you speak to people, the more you, like, we all do carry wounds, right, whether they're big or small, and they all do affect us, and so we have to be attuned to it, and one example among uh, many where the scriptures talk about this is in Genesis 47, you see the, it's, it's in the story of Jacob, and he's the father of Joseph and his 11 other siblings, and so uh, Jacob, in Genesis chapter 47, Jacob has just been rescued from famine, and he's reunited with his sons for the first time in decades, Okay, so you'd think he would be ecstatic, but, and he, he comes to Egypt, and he uh, meets Pharaoh, and Pharaoh asks him, and, Gen- and the, the text should be on the screen, Genesis 47, verse 8, Pharaoh asked, said to Jacob, how many are the days of the years of your life? Meaning, you know, how's it going, Jacob? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, verse 9, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers and the days of their sojourning. So hear that again. The days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. He's old. He's lived a long time. But then how does he perceive it? Few and evil have been the years of my life. And then he, he's bitter. He's comparing his life, you know, to, to, that, to those of his father's. So he's, he's reunited with his kids, but he's just, he's bitter. He's cynical. He's ticked. And think about the life of Jacob. From day one, he had a father that showed radical favoritism toward his older brother. Okay, Jacob, as his dad was um, blind later in life, the only way that Jacob could get his dad to tell him, I love you, was by dressing up so he'd look like and smell like his older brother. His father-in-law tricked him into sleeping with the woman who wasn't his wife. And then, once, once he has children, his sons sell one of his sons into slavery. They traffic Joseph, and they lie to his face about it. Do you think that may have an effect on how Jacob lives after that? Yes. Okay, this is someone who carries deep wounds. And, you know, at some other time, I'd love to, to look more into this and how did Joseph allow God to redeem his past, right, compared to how Jacob used it? But the point here is this Bible here, the Apostle Paul talks about it, other people talk about it. The love, or, the love that we did or did not receive in our history okay, compl- radically alters and shapes who we are in the present. 
and we'll look at that more next week, okay? So, sin, powers, trauma, have a good, have a good Sunday. (laughs) Kidding. Um, I I really shouldn't joke about that. So, what do we make of this? Now, I mean, just due to virtue of constraints, this this sermon is more diagnostic, okay, just trying to see the forces that harm us rather than solution-based. But let's just give it, let's give it a couple takeaways. How does the gospel meet us in it? First is the, the, the pastoral aim here is to help you simply learn to see other people and understand yourself in a more full-orbed way. Because depending on your temperament or the environment that you grew up in, you're going to tend to emphasize one or two of these categories at the expense of the other. So say you grew up in a conservative religious environment. And th- a lot of those environments, and I'm stereotyping, but it's often true, everything's about sin, sometimes powers, never trauma. Right? So if you are depressed, or if you're having a hard time engaging in relationships in a healthy way, you're a sinner. Okay? Don't talk about that woke liberal stuff <laughs> you know, with respect to trauma. Okay, and so they was almost erased that category. And even just from personal experience, I can't tell you how many times where I'm engaging with someone who's treating me in a very unloving way, and I'm learning to grow in this area. But, you know, but very quickly, I just immediately jump to like, oh my gosh, you're just being a sinner, right? You're trying to rival God. Um, you know, you're not, and that may be true, but oftentimes, the more I actually I get to know their story and their history, and I hear about things that happened or didn't happen, I'm like, oh, wow, you know, this actually makes a lot of sense, and I am so sorry. And it does, trauma doesn't mean that we, you know, gloss over or ignore wrongdoings, right? But it should give us greater empathy when we learn about people's histories. And then on the other hand, in some communities, everything's all about trauma and something that happened to a person. And if you even dare to suggest that they also are, res- while they're not responsible for their trauma, they are responsible for the ways they seek to rival God and the ways they do withhold love from other people. Suddenly now you're beyond the pale, you know, to even suggest that somebody might be a sinner. And powers, I, I think at least where we are in the West, um, the powers have really used their best strategy against us, which is to convince us that they don't exist. Yeah, we have one of our missionaries here who's overseas, right? I'm sure you could probably tell us a lot of stories. Um, And this is why, I mean, we need to be people marked by prayer. This is one reason why you could argue our prayer team is our most valuable team in the church because we are up against an enemy that's well above our pay grade. Okay, so just as we navigate our own stories, our own lives, and and engage with other people and love others, we have to keep all three categories in mind, right, that they're always going to be at work, right, even though it might be heavy on one compared to the other two. So that's the first thing. And number two, what what do we do do with this? This is why Jesus matters. This is why Jesus matters so much. Because if sin is a human problem of cosmic proportions, and it is, right, then we cannot solve this issue. No matter what legislation we put in place, no matter what political leaders we put in place, as important as these things are, no matter how much we educate people, Okay, if the problem is a human problem, then humans can't solve the problem, (laughs) right? It it has to be done by Jesus, right, who goes to the cross and absorbs sin on our behalf, and then rising from the dead, when you trust in him, he actually gives you a new heart 
that over time you grow in your desire to reflect God rather than rival him, and you enter into spaces to fully love someone rather than just saying, attend to me, notice me, see me. The powers. We cannot hope to defeat the powers on our own. And in Colossians 2, we're told that Jesus at the cross disarms the powers, meaning when you're in Jesus, okay, when you are trusting in Jesus, while the powers do still exert an influence, they can't control you, and Jesus then equips us with the weapons we need to fight them. So, for example, he gives us prayer and love and truth-telling to fight deception. Okay, he gives us community to, to fight division. Okay, he gives us humanization and treating other people as image-bearers to fight depersonalization. And finally, with, with respect to trauma, uh, something I'm still reflecting on and trying to figure out all the implications of it is in John chapter 20, when the risen Jesus appears to his friends, he still has the holes in his hands and in his side from his crucifixion and torture. And I think one of the things this means is if the trauma and the wounds that Jesus experienced didn't define him, but were actually used redemptively to bring great healing into your life and to the lives of many others. This means that if you are in union with Jesus and you belong to him, then also so it is for you. And while the wounds you carry may be a powerful voice, right, and influence in your life, they do not define you, Right? They do not control you, and you are, you're able to be brought into a story that's much bigger than yourself, and just like Jesus, those wounds will not be the final answer to your life, and they too can be used redemptively, especially in the lives of other people who have experienced or are experiencing what you've experienced. And one day when you meet Jesus, he won't just erase your tears and make it so that you never hurt again, but he'll actually personally mend your wounds himself, and that will be a glorious day. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, this is a uh, massive topic, and I feel like uh, I was way too brief um, or insensitive in some of these places, and uh, I just hope that your Holy Spirit will work through your word uh, to help us to be realistic about the forces that play themselves out in our lives and the lives of those around us, and, uh, but not in a defeatist way, in a way that uh, just gives us the eyes to see and the clarity of vision, and that we all uh, look to Christ, Lord, who's our only hope in this life and the next. Thank you that you've made us into a community uh, who's, who's united with your son, Jesus, and help us to be a force for good in the lives of others. And it's in Jesus' name we pray.